A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, a Malava Malka episode, a recent uh, yard site of Rabbi Yitzchak Kutner. Already had a part one, and incredibly, um, no one really complained that much. I didn't get into trouble, so I figured let's brave it out and go for part two. Let's see what happens. So here it is, and we got. Um, up to Rav Hutner, his youth, Slabatka, Rav Cook, Warsaw, Berlin, University, and we got him to America in the 1930s. In the 1930s, he ends up eventually in Yeshivas Rav Chaim Berlin. He did not name the Yeshiva. Well, he, he studied in Berlin, and then his Yeshiva was Chaim Berlin, but the two have nothing to do with each other. That was, um, that was just... Uh, you know, just happened to be, um, and uh, and he and the yeshiva then is in Brownsville, Brownsville section of Brooklyn in New York. Brownsville was a a, a major Jewish community, a center of Jewish life. And, uh, later in the nineteen fifties and sixties, it petered out. My my mother was born in Brownsville, and my uncles to tell me about it. My grandparents. Brownsville is a very very uh, dynamic Jewish community and it kind of fell apart and um and then and that's when also Chaim Berlin in the nineteen fifties and sixties they also decided to move on and leave it. But it was a very historic Jewish neighborhood. Um and just to give a little context of the neighborhood of where the Chaim Berlin Yeshiva sprouted and had its early years, just to get an idea, when Rabbi Akamisha Shurkin was the Rosh Yeshiva there and and he and and the um, the the Browns also became famous at that time. The, the East New York, that whole that whole area of Brooklyn, for being home to a large percentage of the Jewish mafia. That's how Jewish the neighborhood was. That they even had the the Jewish mafia, the Jewish mafia, which is an, a fascinating story of a piece of American Jewish history, which I hope to. To get to one day, it's also one of my favorites personally. A, a very, uh, you know, exciting story. Um, but uh, just just in the context of Brownsville, the 
the hitmen for the mafia. They were a group of Jews living in Brownsville, mainly by their parents, by their mothers, their Jewish mothers still, and they were nicknamed Murder Incorporated. And basically they were a, a murder-for-hire group um, that the regular mafia families, both the Jews and the Italians, they contracted them to, to you know, t do their hits uh, um, across America, mainly in the New York area, but also across the United States. Um, to, they, this way it kept, the, it kept the, their hands clean. The official families who were involved in the business end of the mafia kept their hands clean for the most part. And the Murder Incorporated, they were professional killers, and they had all their ways that they carried out that killing. And they're all like real Brooklyn Jews. And incredibly, incredibly, they, they were good to the neighborhood. They needed the, they, needed the, they needed the Jews in the neighborhood to be friendly with them, so they would actually um, be very helpful in the neighborhood. They were good Jews, good neighbors. They always had fancy cars, even during the Great Depression. So they were the ones who took women to the hospital when they needed to give birth, and they made all kinds of donations to the local uh, Jewish institutions. And they used to hang out in a candy store. I remember speaking to my uncle. I asked him where he lived in Brownsville. And you're talking about, he's talking, he, was ta he, he left Brownsville in the late 50s, I think. And the Jewish Mafia, Murder Incorporated, was actually caught and hounded by the FBI, and many of them went to the chair in Sing Sing Prison. Um, Phil Strauss and Mendy Weiss and, uh, and uh, um, uh, Abe Reilly's was the rat. He was the one who, who was the turncoat. The FBI used him as a, to testify against his comrades. We'll get to that when we speak about the Mafia. But many of them ended up on the chair. Even their... Their official boss, who was out in Manhattan, was another Jew who originally came from Brownsville, Lepke Buchalter, Louis Lepke Buchalter. And he is the only mafia boss in U.S. mafia history to have gone to the electric chair. So, so they, they're, all, they're, all, they're all gone by the early 1940s. And my uncle's growing up there 15 years later. And he's describing the neighborhood to me, and he said, we actually lived a block away from the candy store. And to him, it was self-evident that anyone would understand what's the candy store. And the candy store was obviously where the Jewish mafia hung out, and that adds a lot to the color of the neighborhood. So the point of all this was obviously that it's a very Jewish neighborhood, and not only is it very Jewish, but it's very diverse. It's not a yeshivish neighborhood, it's not a Hasidish neighborhood. There's a great diversity amongst the Jewish population, so much so that there's even characters like that, like I mentioned. And in that milieu and in that context, not only is there Yeshivas Rabbeinu Chai in Berlin, but there's also Rav Hutner who arrives and during that time. And Rav Hutner um, becomes a major Rebbe in the Yeshiva. Not only that, he also does have an influence in the neighborhood. I mean, one of the people who grew up in East New York, which is a bordering neighborhood, is a fellow by the name of Meyer Birnbaum, who eventually came to be known uh, as Lieutenant Birnbaum, he wrote a book with that title, and he's a, an officer uh, on the front lines in the World War II in the, Euro in the European theater, uh, served with distinction, and I was privileged to eat a few Shabbos meals by him. He has since already passed away a few years already, but when I was a single boy in the Mir Yeshiva, and I heard a lot of stories from him, but he writes there in the, in the book about how he was never in yeshiva. He was a public school boy who came from a very poor family and he had to go out to work at a very young age 
Um, and Rav Hutner was a major influence on his life, despite the fact that he never learned in Chaim Berlin. He got close to the Rav Hutner. Rav Hutner used to give shiurim to neighborhood kids. You're talking about, I would call it the earliest form of Kirov even. And he's, he's out there for the non-yeshiva kids, for the kids who are not exposed to regular Jewish education. There's no one paying Rav Hutner to do it. There's no one asking him to do it, but he goes ahead and does it. And he affects these kids' lives. Meyer Birnbaum considered Rav Hutner his rebbe, one of his main rebbeim, one who was a major influence in his early years. And he wasn't the only neighborhood kid in the Brownsville, East New York uh, general area. Rav Hutner touched many lives um, and influenced them and lifted them up, literally, and kept them Jewish, kept them... Uh, affiliated and engaged uh, to many um, um, boys uh, beyond the strict boundaries of Chaim Berlin, which is a very powerful and I think it could be somewhat overlooked uh, aspect of Rav Hutner's uh, personality and influence. So so much so, by the way, that Meyer Birnbaum relates how when he was drafted after Pearl Harbor, he was drafted into the U.S. Army, he tried to get a divinity school deferment um, from Rav Hutner. He didn't want to go to the army. He was scared. And he goes to Rav Hutner to ask him for a deferment. And Rav Hutner says, you don't learn in Chaim Berlin? And you, yeah, I have to be honest. I can't, I can't tell the government that you're a student at the yeshiva when you're not. And that's, again, Rav Hutner's integrity and honesty, despite the fact that he cared very much for my Berlin. He gives him a lot of chizik and he encourages him. It's the right thing to go to the army and serve the country and whatever it is. But I, you know, but he would not give him the divinity school deferment. But on the other hand, it also reflects the relationship that he was someone that he immediately turned to, that Maibrimim turned to Rav Hutner at that time to uh, to try to get out of it. Um, so Rav Hutner, like we said, there's a board of directors in the yeshiva, and there's other Rabbeim, there's other Rashi yeshiva, and we know today that uh, Rav Hutner was the the boss, the one one in charge, and the only one who had a say there. So that's 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 a that's a great story that's sitting there. How does this, how does the yeshiva that there's a board of directors of Balabatim who founded the yeshiva who run it who are essentially it's theirs they're the ones who hire the rebbeim. That's on one hand. On the other hand, there's all kinds of rebbeim and Russian yeshiva who are senior to him, and eventually it becomes his. How does it all become his? And that's a process that takes a few decades. Um, he gains influence. He's a very charismatic, very dynamic. He also knows. He has his goals. He knows what he's doing. He it takes it takes a while, but his influence increases over time. He assumes control. There's a two pronged strategy. Um, slowly but surely, the rebbeim who are senior, the rashi yeshiva, the other ones um, leave, move on. And he replaces them, and he's able to influence the hiring to get them replaced by people who are close to him, Talmidim of his, people close to him. He eventually gets a, 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 a mashgichim in the yeshiva, and eventually it grows from it. Elementary school, yeshiva high school, already before his time, and then also to a base medrash, a post high school, and a kailal eventually. In fact, the Kyle in Chaim Berlin, also, I think, an overlooked aspect of it, of Rav Hutner's influence, is it's one of the first Kyle in America, right? Rav Aaron Cutler, he starts uh, the first, one of the first, the first. There's, there's, uh, Beis Medish Elian has a Kyle, Rav Shagafaila, Ruben Grzovsky out of Muncie. But, uh, Chaim Berlin is already started, and in the 1950s, it's one of the first Kyle in America. 
and that's also due to Rav Huttner's uh, influence. So, so um, he 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 has you know, as a mashgiach in first he has he has Rabbi Victor Miller, Rabbi Victor Miller, who was a fellow Slabatkin, but at different times. Rabbi Victor Miller came from America at a much later period, but he did learn in Slabatka. And Rabbi Victor Miller, who's known as both as a rabbi, as an author, as a a uh, man with very strong and clear views on pretty much every subject in the world, at one point in his career was a mashgiach, a mashgiach of Talmidim in Chaim Berlin, hired by Rav Huttner. There was also someone who I believe is still alive, if I'm not mistaken, and if he is, he'll sein gesund and stark, um, Rav Shleim Kalbach, not, not that Rav Shleim Kalbach, but a different Rav Shleim Kalbach, his cousin actually, Rav Yosef Kalbach, who was the rabbi in Hamburg, who was killed by the Nazis in Riga, so his son, Rav Shlomo Kavach, was one of the only ones from that family to survive the Holocaust. And he also became a Mashgiach for many years in Chaim Berlin. And there were others, there are other many Rebbeim there that he got in. And the second uh, part of the strategy was to gain control of the board and to gain rest control away from the Balabatim running the yeshiva to make it that the Rosh Yeshiva and he himself runs the yeshiva, which was also a long process. But eventually expedited the process was the fact that Brownsville, as a Jewish neighborhood, went uh, went sour in the 1950s and the yeshiva had to leave. The, 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 the neighborhood, the demographics changed and crime went up. And as we know, Brownsville today, even though now I think it's uh, getting a, a bit of a regentrification, as far as I know, I haven't been there in a while, um, but um, but it moves out to Farakway. So the, the Rav Huttner moves with the yeshiva to Farakway, and in this move to Farakway, and eventually back to Flatbush, where it is till today, in those two moves, Rav Huttner is able to uh, assume full control of the yeshiva. Uh, it, it, each time it moves, he's able to change a little bit of the staff, change a little bit of the makeup, a little bit of the internal uh, power in the yeshiva, and eventually he gains full control, and it becomes very dominantly him and his personality, and that's how it's remembered till today. Interestingly enough, though, when he when he leaves Farakway, his closest Talmud, Rabbi Shleimer Freifold, who pretty much was his his main Talmud, his Talmud Mufak, we would call him his primary student, um, who received smicha from him and was very much influenced by him, and also took his own way. Freifeld was a somewhat of a Rebbe in the, he's one of those young Rebbeim, Talmidim of Rav Huttner, who were hired at that time. Freifeld also spent some time in Eretz Yisrael, and got close to Chazanish, was involved in, in education in here in the 1950s in Eretz Yisrael. But uh, he's back in Chaim Berlin. And during this move to Farakaway, when Rav Huttner, the building is ready, and they move back to Flatbush, they move back to Brooklyn, and they go to Flatbush, the the um, Freifeld asks permission from Rav Huttner to break off a faction of the yeshiva, take a group, and he's going to start his new yeshiva, and he's going to stay in Farakaway. And he receives Rav Huttner's blessing. And Shar Yashiv is started with Rav Huttner's blessing, and that is an influence that Rav Huttner has, again, beyond the walls of Chaim Berlin, and it's in many ways it's expressed. Rav Huttner was involved in Agudas Yisrael, and Tarim Messiah, and other organizations as well. He's also involved in Eretz Yisrael in his later years, which hopefully we'll get to. And Rufreifeld stays in Farakaway. He starts Shar Yashiv, and it's a different kind of yeshiva. It's not Chaim Berlin. It's not an elite yeshiva. It's a different type, which fits the 
the move, mood uh, and the winds of the 60s, the 1960s, and it's the, he essentially comes to be a pioneer in the Kirov movement and the whole hippie and counterculture atmosphere of the, of the 1960s. We could say the yeshiva expression of it is in Shar Yashiv with Rav Freifeld, with the imprint of Rav Hutner, and in many ways the, the atmosphere in the yeshiva. Um, just in a small way, they, they, Shar Yashiv weddings always sang Bilvavi Mishkan Evne, just like in Chaim Berlin, which was Rav Hutner's sort of his words, his composition, something definitely involved in that, in that poetry. And what's a, a side note, which is really a topic in itself, is the role that the Vietnam War plays in uh, in in the surge in 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 uh, yeshiva attendance in the United States, and is directly involved in the story of Shar Yashiv and Chaim Berlin at this point, because the the, the way that it really starts, and this I heard uh, from the the son of the one involved, is that a group of balabatim, a group of laymen in Farakaway approach Reb Freifeld, and they re- really ask him to start Shai The main one was an, a Polish Jew, Holocaust survivor named Joe Petersile, and he, and he convinces Reb Freifeld to start a yeshiva for his son and for others in the neighborhood who were trying to get out of the Vietnam War draft. And if there would be any yeshiva, again, a divinity school deferment, they're training to become rabbis, which is how yeshivas were seen. And that... And that um, and the, and if they would be an issue, they didn't want them to be sent out to Da Nang and be killed by the Viet Cong. It was a horrible war. Everyone, a lot of people were anti it, and fifty six thousand Americans were killed over the nine years of involvement out there. And it's a controversial war till today. So many people did not want, you know. And there was the whole anti war movement. Eventually, again, we're in the early stages, but but eventually, what it led to was the anti war movement and the counterculture movement. There's a lot of factors involved. Civil rights movement at the time, America in the 1960s was an interesting place, and and um, the Vietnam War draft uh, essentially created Shar Yashiv. And if we take that a step further, we'll actually notice that even though we usually attribute the building, the architects of the American yeshiva world to the great people, the visionaries who did it, and they deserve all the credit. I'm not going to take it away from them at all. Rav Shraga Fivel Mendelovich and uh, Rav Aaron Cutler, and Rav Revel, and other people who who were built yeshivas, Rav Hutner, who we're speaking about, and, and Rav Ruderman, and many other people involved in Tells and other places who built yeshivas and built Tyre in America, but how did they have so many students? There were very few people who wanted to go to yeshiva at that time, especially post-high school. High school, they were willing to go, the more Froma families, they're willing to send their kid in the 1950s and 60s for a year after high school, maybe two years after high school. But the yeshiva movement really took off when the Vietnam War draft came out because now all these people who sent their kids to high school said stay in yeshiva as long as you can. Stay first year base measures, second year base measures, third or fourth. Stay in Kyle for crying out loud. Stay out of the war. Don't go to, don't go to get sent overseas. Don't get drafted. This is a crazy war. We don't want you to be drafted. And parents started encouraging their children to stay in yeshiva. And there's this quiet role that the Vietnam War drafts, the Vietnam Vietnam War draft plays in the growth of the American yeshiva world. By the way, if we take that across the Atlantic, 
It's similar to what the draft played, which is not just limited to the Vietnam War, but it's actually since the inception of the state of Israel, there's been a draft till today. The uh, the uh, the the uh, growth in the numbers of the Israeli yeshiva world and the Kail system is also largely uh, because of the draft. That's also another story we got off topic. So Chaim Berlin moves back to Brooklyn. Chaim Berlin is one of the yeshivas that allowed secular studies, that allowed uh, students to go to college. And then there's all there's different portrayals of it, and it's uh, a lot of legends involved. It's hard to know exactly what was the reality, and I haven't been able to figure out exactly. I can't put a finger on it. There are there's a version that says that that Rav Hutner himself believed that as an ideal that it's important to have secular studies in the high school, and it's important to allow the boys in the base medrash to be able to go to college at night or whatever, to, to, to incorporate college education because they need to make a living. And he felt that that was important and that was an ideal and it was l'chatchil and it wasn't b'diyavet. Others will say that it was the reality of Chaim Berlin from beforehand when it was the Balabatim who founded the yeshiva. And it was an early American yeshiva and they obviously couldn't have it any other way because it was unrealistic at the time. And it just stayed that way and it was never changed or never implemented that change. And it probably is a combination of both factors, but that's the reality that it, that that uh, that Rav oversaw. Um one of the main major events in Rav Hutner's life is that he always wanted to go back to Eretz Yisrael. He visited many times, and one of his visits, and eventually settled there. At the end of his life, he settled there. He lived in Nine Surutskin. He started the yeshiva Pachad Yitzchak with his his, own, his only child, Rabbi Sambury David, and his son-in-law, Rabbi Yenison David, and uh, and they and and he and he settled in Eretz Yisrael, and he lived out his last. He also was involved in the Beis HaTalmud Yeshiva, and Sinajim Mechav for a while with Rabbi Schwartz, but that relationship did not uh, last very long. So, but on one of his earlier visits to uh, Eretz Yisrael, he was hijacked in the Dawson Field hijackings, which was three planes, and I, to the best of my knowledge, this is the only time that a high-level Gadol Yisrael, great Torah leader, was hijacked, held by terrorists. A very scary and uh, dramatic uh, story. They first, after a few weeks, they released uh, the women and children, and then well, the whole world outcry. And eventually, he was released along with other hostages, and he made it back to Chaim Berlin uh, right before Shoshana of 1970. That's also a bigger story. Um, what it became known for in Chaim Berlin was his Maimarim, his long speeches, uh, usually around Yom Tov time, and based on deep concepts and thoughts, and mainly with the Torah of the Maharal of Prague. And it became a very interesting combination. On one hand, he was the Slabatker, he was the Litvak Rosh Yeshiva, and the learning there was a Lithuanian-style Yeshiva. On the other hand, these Maimarim, these Fabrangans that he would have, was like kind of rubbish. It was kind of a Hasidish Atish. And there was a big band when it was appropriate in Purim and other times. The songs, the singing, the Chaim Berlin songs are famous till today. And there's this interesting, fascinating even, combination of elements of Hasidus, elements of a Rebbe Hasid relationship between Rav Hutner and his Talmudim, and on the other hand, it's a Lithuanian-style yeshiva and learning. And that combination you don't have anywhere else in the world. That was unique to Rav Hutner, and that was unique to Chaim Berlin at that time. Um, 
Vintner as a deep thinker, he had an interesting takes on a lot of things. One of his more interesting, uh, very interesting, I would say, uh, his takes is on the Holocaust. A very interesting article that, uh, again, I'm trying to think of a better word than interesting, but um, I can't think of another PC word that would be, that would work for it. But it was an article that was published in the Jewish Observer in 1977, where he give, puts it in a historical context which is, uh, you know, an arguable theory. And, um, but, and I'm not going to go into the whole story of how he puts it into context, and he attaches, for some reason, great importance to the meeting between Hitler and the Mufti of Jerusalem. And he, and he you know, he, he puts the Holocaust into the history of tragedy and destruction in Israel, and he just explains the European Jewry pre-emancipation, post-emancipation, the relationship of the Jewish people in Europe to the non-Jews and the ones who had given them equal rights. Uh, it's definitely a good read. And, um, and, but what's unique about it is that not many uh, great rabbis of his time did it. Um, not, not enough, anyway. And uh, to give a clear view from a sitting Torah leader uh, about the tragedy of the Holocaust, which was quite uncommon at the time, definitely contributed to... Uh, to a Holocaust education and understanding within the Orthodox world. So that's another uh, aspect of his literally endless personality and, and contribution and depth and, 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 and whatnot. So that's a little more about Rav Huttner. And of course, there's always more. I don't know if we'll have a part three, but at least we had two good parts here. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. And, um, and you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and of course, tours and trips to all these great places. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.